welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Catherine Ambia, who is the clinical site coordinator at a school-based mental health clinic in Queens, New York. We discuss Catherine's work with high school students who are experiencing a range of issues impacting their lives. We talk about racism, historical trauma, colonialism, immigration, coping skills, and how Catherine approaches these topics with students by creating a safe space where they feel like they can talk with her about anything. We discuss the Trump administration's family separation policy, ICE, deportation, and the impact on students and families, and also the impact on professionals, particularly those who are members of groups being targeted. Catherine shares about self-care, balancing work and activism, her family's experience with immigration, parenthood, and finding hope in the youth activism of today. We also talk about self-disclosure. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Catherine, I'm so glad to have you coming on, doing the work and sharing your experience with us. And so I guess to just get started, could you let us know what you're doing these days? So currently, I'm the clinical site coordinator for a school-based mental health clinic at a high school in Long Island City, Queens. Let's say someone, you know, was visiting your school um, or one of the schools for the day and was just kind of trying to understand what you do there and what the approach is working with the students. What would that look like for someone just coming in for, for a day to visit? So I think that's really interesting. So part of the program that I'm in is uh, part of our work is destigmatizing mental health because a lot of the kids, well, it's 80% Latino. A lot of the kids are first generation or they're newly arrived. And so they don't really, you know, culturally, um, mental health is sort of not really talked about. They don't really seek therapy, but there is a really high mental health need at this school. And, you know, a lot of the kids have a lot of trauma from immigration trauma, um, historical trauma. So I think a lot of what I do is just kind of making a space that the kids can come to and talk about mental health. So I do individual one-on-one but I also do workshops on Fridays that are just open door and I get food for the kids. And every week we talk about a different topic related to mental health. So like stress, depression, anxiety, we talk about racism, trauma, and they can just come. And so I think that's really helped them feel comfortable coming into the space. And they're sort of learning the language to talk about mental health now. And I've even overheard conversations in the hallway where they're like, you know, using things that we've talked about during our workshop. So that's really cool. That is really cool. Do they, I'm, I figure, you know, someone comes to a workshop to check it out and then they'll bring some friends to the next one. Totally. Yeah. It ends up being like, often it ends up being the same kids every week. So almost like a closed group, but we don't put that label on it. So they, you know, and, and they can bring other friends if they want. So yeah, it's kids bring friends. They like refer kids. Teachers can refer kids. So that's kind of what it looks like. And then I do a fair amount of professional developments for teachers also, um, like classroom management stuff. And we talk about student mental health and how what things that they can look out for if 
a student is having a mental health issue, ways that they can de-escalate situations, you know, stuff like that. So I think if you were to come in, you'd see a mix of that. You'd see me out in the hallway a lot. Um, I try to go into class so the kids know me in the cafeteria and have lunch with them. And So you're at one school? I'm at one school, yeah. And how many, what's... What's the ratio of like how many kids are at, how many students are at the school? We have 1600 kids, ninth through 12th grade. There's one DOE social worker who's there two days a week and then me. And that's pretty much it for mental health services. They have guidance counselors, but they do most. There's there are four guidance counselors, but they do most of the programming and like, you know, more academic stuff. So yeah, there's really only, I guess, one and a half social workers for 1600 kids. Right. So it's a, it's a large ratio. The nice thing is you're there on site. So you're always there and they get to really know you. It sounds like the teachers get to know you and that probably helps with the students getting connected to you as well. Yeah, They've been great. Like the teachers have let me push into classes and do whole lessons on different topics and they really supported me. So I think the school, for the most part, they're open to it and they've been, you know, administration has been great. Like they're really on board with mental health. So I think that's really important. If you're doing school-based work, if you don't have the support or the buy-in from staff, you're never going to get anywhere. And so I've been really lucky at this school. Like they were ready, willing, and it's been great. But I've only been there for two months. So we'll see. Right. Well, it sounds like it's a good start. And I know, I know you come from a, um, you know, you have a lot of experience working in schools and I want to get to that in a second, but I wanted to ask you, I wanted to follow up on a couple of things you mentioned in terms of the issues that you're, that you see frequently among the students. You know, you mm-hmm. talked about stigma, you talked about some cultural barriers around mental health, you know, mm-hmm. for, for different reasons. And you also mentioned historical trauma. And I, and I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit because I actually am in the middle of teaching some MSW students about historical trauma, and I'm shocked when I ask them how many have ever heard of the term before, mm-hmm. and barely any raise their hand. And wow. they also don't often know the history of what happened, what's happened in this country mm-hmm. that's created this historical trauma. Yeah, and so I'm interested in how you use your knowledge of historical trauma to influence your approach with the students and how that like what that looks like when you're actually doing a group or working with a student. Well, I think first of all, like racism and is not often seen as being traumatic, depending on who you're talking to. So I think just acknowledging that first and foremost, that if you're black in America, you are holding a lot of stuff that has happened not only to you on a daily basis, but your family and your grandparents and your great great grandparents and all the way back that is passed on generationally. So I think really, for me, historical trauma is generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the kids, you know, especially in this day and age, I find this generation has an interesting way of talking about racism, like they see it, and they get it in theory, but they don't really, they they don't really have the language to talk about it. I think the way that we do, because it's kind of become more covert, if that makes sense. Like they're kind of more like, oh, we're colorblind. Like we don't see race. Everybody like gets along, but I have this 
suspiciousness and wariness of white people and why is that or like I know that I'm not always welcomed in these spaces but why is that but oh like Kim Kardashian is married to Kanye you know Kanye and like so it's kind of an interesting way of talking about it but I think when you give them the space to talk about that and their experience like it all comes out and then so not only do you have that but also for me, a lot of the Latino families that I work with, they've experienced all kinds of stuff in their country of origin. Like a lot of them are from Central America. And so they're, you know, their parents or they came here escaping like gang violence and political unrest. And so they've had a lot of trauma from colonialism and like the consequences of colonialism. And so they're bringing a lot of that stuff here. And then they're further traumatized because a lot of them are undocumented or they have DACA. And so now it's like, it's just layers and layers of trauma because now they're living in fear that they're going to be deported. I've had students whose parents were deported. Uh, both parents were deported. Student was born here, but is now living with his grandmother. And he has no idea if his parents will ever come back to the U.S. They've been deported to Mexico. So that's something that the kids are dealing with, too. So I think first and foremost, giving kids a space to talk about it and to see it as trauma, because I think a lot of kids too have just internalized this experience and they don't know how it's affecting them because they just think that it's, it's normal to Mm -hmm. feel, you know, angry or to have these feelings of like, of response, like, doesn't everybody, you know, smoke weed 10 times a day to like, feel better? I'm like, no, not everybody does, but let's look at why you're doing that and all the things that like you're self-medicating. Yeah, so I think giving them the space to talk about it, having them view it as trauma. And then I think for teenagers, like having someone that they can go to is something that they really need. Like they don't necessarily have anyone who's willing to listen to you know what's happened to them. So a lot of it is you being creating that relationship where they can come to you and just talk and you listen and, and you're validating. But also like asking them specifically about their experiences of being brown or black in America and about their families. Because mm-hmm. I think therapy doesn't always address those issues. You know, like you could you could get into therapy easily and never touch on race and look at depression oh, totally. and anxiety. Yeah, as like pathologize disorders and not really look at what's what's causing those things right like if if you're you know undocumented in america and all of a sudden donald trump becomes president and you're showing up at school with anxiety you know because now you know what's coming because he just campaigned on it for however long or like that's not that's not pathology you know that's not right totally or what's happening in new york like People are tweeting out like, oh, ICE is at, you know, Junction Boulevard train station, like rounding people up like that's happening. ICE is at 23rd Street in Manhattan. Like this stuff is real. And whether or not they're actually there, like this is the fear on the street, you know, that people are like, like I've had parents call me and say that they want to come pick their kids up because they think that there's ICE like rounding kids up in the train station. You know, I think the fear is really palpable and you know, our parents aren't letting their kids go any go places or the family itself isn't traveling or isn't going around New York or isn't like, they're not like enjoying life the way they should be because of the fear. Right. And then these kids are supposed to do schoolwork too. Yeah. Like with and all concentrate stress. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a large part of it. And then like, you know, trauma work, a lot of it is unpacking the trauma, writing narratives, like sort of doing like a a CBT approach and moving through that process for the kids. So 
it's similar for historical trauma. And I think a lot of research, there's still a lot of research to be done. Actually, a professor that I had at Columbia, Dr. Braveheart, I'm sure you're familiar oh, with yeah. work, but she she's really helped define first. it. She helped yeah. define historical trauma. She's the first person to really develop like the historical trauma response and like the model for working. And I think others have come after her and have sort of, you know, done some work on it, but it's really still a new thing that's being developed. And, you know, it's not, it hasn't been developed, like she works with native populations and it hasn't really been looked at as much with Latino, you know, Latino youth and families. But I think you see a lot of the same statistics as you do with American Indian youth, um, with Black and Latino youth. I think it's real. And I also think, you know, therapy historically, like, you know, this isn't really designed for people of color. So like, for the most part, if you do have a mental health issue, 80% or something of kids of color don't seek help. And a lot of that has to do with stigma. But also, it's largely related to the fact that like help isn't for you. The person you talk to often doesn't doesn't understand you doesn't ask you the right questions. You know, it's sort of, I think, historically hasn't been it's been a white thing. It hasn't been for communities. So I think really, that's like the brunt of my work and has been the brunt of my work for the last five years in schools. And the reason in schools is just because that's where kids are more than they are anywhere else. So I think for me, I really saw that as a way to reach youth. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the most effective places if you can break through and especially if the administration is supportive and not just, oh, we have to have a social worker here type of thing, right? Yeah, totally. What's really helped you over these years of practicing in schools and doing this kind of work? What have you learned the most from the students themselves and the families about like what, how you need to approach them for them to keep utilizing the services? I think that a lot of it has been sort of letting people tell you what they need. Prior to being in schools, I did in-home work, which is different because it sort of shifts the power dynamic. You're going to the family and you're in their home. And so they sort of, you know, it's on their turf. It's where they're comfortable. You're the one who's sort of out of your comfort zone because you're in someone else's home. So I think that taught me a lot about how to sort of make these so-called clinical interactions more comfortable. Like I try my best to not, even though now they're coming to me at school, I try to like make it a space where people feel comfortable. So whether that's letting people initiate the interaction, not like imposing or forcing anything on the kids to teenagers. I mean, I think teenagers, especially like they want to feel like they're in control of what they're doing. And so if they're already hesitant about seeking therapy, and then you kind of tell them like, what they need to be doing or, you know, take any sort of directive approach, it can be really hard for them. So I think initially, like, I really just try to take a step back, listen, you know, offer a space for like, this is what you guys, this is for you, whatever it is that you feel is most pressing or what you want to work on, like, that's what we're going to start with. And I think the kids have taught me like, so much, like they've taught me so much about being resilient and about patience and like, perseverance and what strength looks like in like the rawest like I've had kids who've been through so much they've been through more than most adults I know and they're still caring funny kind people who are like creative and I think they've just taught me so much about being a teenager but like coming like just persevering like going on you know and about like love and families 
the importance of family, no matter what that family looks like. That family is not just who you're born into, it's also chosen family. Yeah, I think they've taught me a lot about that. And and they get to define who family is for them, right? Yeah. And like bring who they, you know, like a family session doesn't have to be mom, dad, brother, sister. It can be neighbor, grandmother, you know, cousin, friend. I've done like couples therapy for 17 year olds because that's what they want to do. Yeah. It's so. not, I mean, it sounds like uh, the date, your days are pretty exciting <laughs> that there's yeah. always something going on. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, when you, you know, just thinking about all these issues that you're talking about and also about some of the movements going on in the country right now around, um, you know, you mentioned ICE in particular, and there's, you know, calls to abolish ICE. There's different, there's a lot of protests happening because of this family separation policy. I, I think it should just be called child kidnap, state sanctioned kidnapping. Yes. That's what they're doing. State sanctioned terrorism. <laughs> yeah. And then you're, you know, and then you're in this more clinical space in a school. How do you kind of navigate that in, in, you know, this core value of social justice and, you know, being able to do things that maybe more of like a macro type level, you know, is that mm-hmm. part of how do you navigate all of that? Because I, I know from just talking to clinicians that can be really, cha- it, fe- it can feel very challenging. Yeah. And I think it feels challenging because... You know, for us, it's it's our work every day, all the time. And so then on top of that, if you're also an activist and someone who's politically active, it can be very draining emotionally and especially if it's personal for you. And I think that's been something that I've sort of grappled with because, you know, obviously for me and my own family and like my own background, like it's been sort of an emotional time because, you know, my father was undocumented for a while and like, was in deportation proceedings and is a U.S. citizen now, but like there was definitely an insecure time for my family. I've had relatives cross the border. I feel like it hits very close to home for me and everything has obviously up to this point, like I've cared deeply, but this feels like especially personal and, you know, I'm also the mom of a young kid. And so I can actually like now I know what that would feel like to have my child taken away from me. Like I can't even imagine the pain and like how hard that is. Like it's really gut wrenching. And then on top of it, then you go to work every day and you're like hearing people's trauma and you're trying to hold that for them. And on top of your own stuff and like your own triggers, like it can be really emotionally taxing. So I think for me, like, that's something that I'm not good at. Like I'm not really good at self-care. And I think that's something social workers really need to work on. Um, And I laugh, but it's not funny actually at all. So I think that I've found ways that I can be politically involved that are like more joyful. Like I think I'm trying to, to find hope in like collective action, organizing with friends, like going to like, you know, friends that are hosting meetings to talk about action strategies like I've been doing that and making it more of a community thing for me you know today I went and I got a tattoo because the proceeds went to support races in Texas I'm trying to do things like that and also having a child helps because when I spend time with her I'm like okay I'm focused on her I'm not like thinking about all this other stuff yeah that's hope right there it is like it is 
And I know like, it's funny, like I've had friends who are like grappling with the decision to have kids because of Trump being president, all the stuff that's happening. And I'm like, but you know, having a kid has really been like such a joy in this time. Like, this is why we have kids. Like there's always bad stuff going on in the world. And like, people have always had children because like, it is hope. Like this is the next generation. This is who we're like building to make things different, you know? But it's hard. And I definitely think therapy is important for social workers who are like doing this work. Yeah, we need support. Yeah. For sure. Like, I was just therapy, thinking, individual. I was just thinking if someone's like delaying, you know, parenting, like having children because of what's going on politically, it's just like the day could never come because like you said, yeah. there's always something. But you know, that's obviously a very personal decision yeah. to have. Do any of I mean, that's a lot of students at the school. And I'm just thinking of, do any of them or any of them involved in kind of like activist stuff? It seems like a lot of young people are getting involved with it at a much younger age these days. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's also so amazing and uplifting. Like young people are starting this new mass movement. At my last school, we had every single student walked out after the Parkland shooting, like 400 kids walked out of class and they made signs and they were so organized. They took it out to the field and like chanted and they had a moment of silence for every person who was killed. This is, and that's, that's where like the hope is like just seeing the kids take initiative, care so much about changing something and then do the action. Like that's all I need to feel like this is worth it. And I do think that's important. Like looking for those small things, they keep you going. Do you, are you, are you able to interact with the students around that? Is that something that's supported for you to be involved with those things, you know, that you're openly supporting what they're doing or even letting them know about stuff? It is actually, and I'm sort of lucky in that I'm not, so I'm not a department of education staff person. I'm not in the DOE. I think you have more limits when you actually work for the DOE. Like you can't walk out, you can't talk about certain things, but because I work for community partners, um, and that's what I've been mostly the last five years, I work for a community-based organization that's partnered with the school. So I have more flexibility around issues like that. Like I can, you know, when the students walked out, I was able to walk out with them, whereas teachers weren't. So yeah, I think I have more flexibility to talk about those issues and to support students in coming up with action strategies. I'm not going to like get in trouble for that. Right. And it's sad that if you work for the DOE, like you have restrictions on that. It's got to be validating for the students, you know, getting back to kind of how we started this conversation when you bring up stigma culture, trauma, you know, racism, and then they see that, hey, you know, the social worker, or the counselor, whatever they call you, you know, um, Mrs. A, whatever. Ms. Cat. Yeah, that they see that you're supporting what they're doing, too. That's mm-hmm. got to validate all of that as well. Totally. I mean, they come to me a lot and they're like, what do you think of Trump? Like, so-and-so is a Trump supporter. They'll like rat out other kids in the school. And I'm like, are they really like, let's have a conversation about what that looks like. Like this is a Brown kid who's a Trump supporter. Like let's break this down. And like often, you know, and you know, it's like we joke around about that stuff too. Like I think I've become someone that they can talk to about anything, even if it's, you know, if it's political, if it's not political, like I think that's what, how they see me. Do you disclose, do you self disclose, you know, do they know about that? Do they, like, would you say, 
straight up to them, you know, where you stand on things or you kind of, you do. Yeah. I do related to that because I think I've come to the point where if you support Trump, you're racist, you're racist. That might sound, but like, there's no other way around it. If you support Donald Trump, like you are inherently opposed to people of color, working class people, progress in this country, like women, women. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, so I'm very clear about where I stand and I, I, I will productively, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share why and how I feel about it. And I, and I hope that if students disagree with me, that at least they're thinking about the reasons that I presented for why I'm very anti this current administration. What about your fam? Like some of what you said in terms of your dad and you know, when he was going through possible deportation and those things, Mm -hmm. do you, do you share about that with the students? Um, So I don't, you know, I think if it's something that's productive or enhancing a conversation, I'll share, I'll self-disclose. I tend not to share that as much. And maybe that's something, I'm not sure why, but I recently actually gave the commencement address at my last school. Wow. And I did share it because my speech was like pretty political. It was all about you know, it's all about what's currently happening and about our, my, the kid, you know, my the kids are going through a lot of them are those kids, like their parents could have easily had this happen to them coming into America. And so that was the first time I'd like shared it with the entire school and their parents and like the staff and principal. What was the response like? You know, it's been really positive. It was a risk that I took and I wasn't sure if like it would be well received, but everyone has given me really positive feedback. Like that was really powerful. It like hit close to home, like hearing your personal narrative kind of made it real for, you know, that's what people have told me and they appreciated it. So I don't know. I'm still like, for me, self-disclosure is still this tricky thing because I've in training, you know, they tell you not to self-disclose. It's this big thing. But then I went, I tra- when I went, was at the Ackerman Institute, like we were kind of told to self-disclose. And then I did my clinical fellowship at Yale. And that was like, so never say anything of self. So <laughs> right. I was like, I've gone like all over the place. And now I'm trying to develop my own style, which is like somewhere in the middle, I think. Yeah, it's. I can really relate to what you're saying because it's that initial, what you're taught is to never say anything. And it's that some people are still teaching it that way. Yeah. Cause I hear it from my students that some of my colleagues are like, no, never. And then I probably convey a bit of a different message that's, you know, um, it depends on, you know, what the situation is. And it's also depends on a personal decision, right? Like if you actually want people to know about that, because you know that once it gets out, especially working at a school, the whole school is going to know. Oh, yeah, totally. So you got to be cool. You got to be okay with that. And then it's like, is this going to be helpful? You know, that's the part that I do think is the good guideline that does get taught is like, is it going to be beneficial? It's just that some people seem to cling to this old idea that it's usually not beneficial. Right. And it might be, you know, so and I think it's often a cultural thing, too. Yeah, yeah. I recently did a professional development for teachers and I opened it with a picture of myself in high school and everyone was like, uh, and then I was like, yeah, this is me in high school. And the reason that I do this work is because high school sucked for me. 
I had a lot of anxiety. I had panic attacks in high school and like my parents didn't know how to help me. Like no one was ever like, go to therapy. And there's a lot of stuff happening in my family when I was younger, like addiction and divorce and like high school is a really stressful time for me. And I just had no one and nobody like at school opened themselves to me to go to, you know, like, and I don't want that to happen to anyone else. Like, I think that's like why I do this work. High school can be really hard or it can be a time when you learn how to help yourself and that will stay with you for the rest of your life. If you can develop these techniques in high school, you're, you're set. And so I shared that with teachers because I know that a lot of them went through the same thing and like maybe they don't talk about it, but they should and they should remember what that was like because they're now teaching students that are probably going through very similar things. So I was really candid about that. And that response was really overwhelming too. Like the teachers were all like, thank you so much for sharing that. Like I had teachers coming to me saying like they wanted referrals for like... <laughs> therapy and I was like I can't do that for you I can't like give you the therapy but I'll send you somewhere like <laughs> that's so, great though that's really yeah powerful. so like self-disclosure I think can be really powerful but if done appropriately yeah you know um time's kind of flown here and so I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and also you know for doing the work in the community thank you I really appreciate that thanks for having me Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.